Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. One year in, the pandemic has shown just how fractured the United States of America is. COVID-19, which was declared a global pandemic a year ago by the World Health Organization, has disproportionately hit communities of color here when it comes to the number of cases and deaths. The inequities that exist can no longer be ignored. Those that suffer from them have always known that policies in this nation are lopsided and that we have to do better. After more than 525,000 people have died in America, many now agree. So why do these inequities persist, and what is the solution? We turn to Sean Fremsted, a senior policy fellow at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, which studies these inequities and crafts policy solutions. He joins Equal Time to talk about what the past year of COVID has revealed, issues in plain sight all along, and what policies he is optimistic about in the year ahead. Welcome to Equal Time, Sean. Hi there, Mary. So happy to be on. Yeah. So I want to ask you, uh, what has been your focus this year? So this year, I mean, the big focus right now has been um, the the bill moving through Congress, the American Rescue Plan Act, which is just a a really um, uh, important COVID relief measure. And, and really kind of both responding to the, the economic crisis caused by um, the pandemic and um, the, social, the social crisis. Well, what have you learned from that work? <laughs> what have I learned? I mean, <laughs> I would just generally say it's been quite um, the ride um, over this last year. Um, and I think one of the things we've learned from the pandemic is how deep a lot of the class race and other fissures are in American society. I mean, I just, I'm not, you know, normally surprised by, by, you know, the, by structural, you know, inequalities, but um, this has really unmasked them in ways that I think, um, you know, are even striking to somebody like me who's been working um, this area. Now, COVID has shed a light on all of these race-based inequities across all the policies, and you mentioned a few. So why don't we start with healthcare? since that's the one right in front of us. And can you tell us about the bias that exists in that area? Sure. I mean, I think one of the things about, you know, maybe the single most extraordinary, um, you know, fact about COVID is the racial disparities in both cases and um, mortality, deaths. And so, you know, Black Americans, um, Hispanic Americans, both groups are two times as likely to have died um, from COVID um, over the past year compared to white Americans, white non-Hispanic Americans. And that's controlling for things like age and, you know, so trying to kind of compare apples to apples. And that's just, you know, that is still just a stunning fact, two times as likely. Um, And a lot of that I think is rooted in things like uh, disparities in the healthcare uh, system. So things like access to health insurance, access to good treatment, but also just inequalities in, you know, in economic inequalities, you know, you're low income, um, you're more likely um, to be at risk, you're more likely to be doing essential work that puts you at risk, you know, whether it's in a meat packing plant, where there's been just extraordinary kind of illness and and death rates, or in a grocery store, or working as a a healthcare aide, um, you know, in in a nursing home. So I think it's kind of a multiple things that are contributing that kind of inequity. You also looked at housing insecurity before and during the uh, pandemic. You had a report on that at the center. So um, how did COVID push this problem that existed into becoming 
what your report calls a crisis with uh, the increasing numbers of evictions and more. Talk to us a little bit about it. Yeah. So one of the things we've looked at um, is um, data on what's called housing insecurity, on food insecurity. So both of these things are basically the government will do surveys. They'll ask, you know, are you afraid you're going to be evicted, foreclosed on? Um, How confident are you you can pay your rent or mortgage next month? And there were, you know, the interesting thing going back, um, you know, these disparities have always been there. But over the last few years, the disparities before COVID, actually, the economy had been improving. There was some narrowing in these gaps. I mean, the lower you press down, you know, the lower unemployment gets, the more people um, are able to get decent jobs, the more we have a full employment economy, um, the more people are able to pay the rent, keep up with things and not feel um, stressed. And so people were actually coming out of the Great Recession, which had lasting impacts. But COVID just turned that around. And it's been particularly notable. We did a paper um, where, you know, you look at the polling and there isn't a big change. Um, You know, there is some increase in housing and food insecurity among white Americans, especially those, say, you know, with only a college degree or less, but it's very different. Uh, It's a much larger increase for both um, Hispanics and Black Americans. And it really is kind of reversing progress that was made and deepening it over the last um, uh, few years. There's education as well, which has been a huge part of this. Uh, It's really, you know, turned that system upside down. Can you share any information you have on uh, inequities in that area? Some of what we see is just, you know, children being uh, differences in kind of how effective the switch to not having children learning in school. When you have children learning at home, you have big differences in terms of access, say, to things like um, decent uh, internet connectivity, broadband, so that you can have, you know, kids participating on Zoom, differences in things like computers at home. It really does kind of, again, remind us that, you know, there's both issues in in schooling itself and disparities and a lot of segregation and things. But, um, you know, having kids learning from home too doesn't make that um, any better. And so I think all of those factors, it just kind of adds up to the total impact of COVID that we've seen. Yeah. And I see some money in the bill, you know, to modify even the schools themselves because schools in some areas the school structure itself needs modification for ventilation and things like that just to make it safe. Occupational health and safety, yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the good thing to know is this bill now that is very close to passage, final passage, it's not going to change really much more. It's going to go to the president for signature, um, does so many important things to address these issues. Some of them are temporary. Some of them will have um, long-lasting impact. So there is, for instance, um, a substantial amount of money for schools to do retrofitting and improvements that will make them more safe, you know, during COVID, but also kind of going forward improve um, what we know were kind of lasting big disparities in kind of the quality of school infrastructure. Yeah, before we get deeper into the particulars of this bill and what it would do, uh, maybe we could pivot back and talk a little bit more about just how uh, lopsided uh, the policies are and how great the disparities are. Uh, I know you've done some studies on the issue of employment, insurance, uh, all kinds of things, and how they disproportionately affect people of color. So if you could highlight those, uh, so even even though COVID numbers are falling, we want to make sure that folks understand just, you know, how how just incredibly far apart we are. One way to think about this is just things like uh, unemployment, uh, the employment rate, and COVID has very disproportionately um, affected in terms of joblessness, um, people of color, 
lower income people. Uh, it's had a disproportionate effect, particularly on mothers, single mothers. It is really kind of, you know, some of those disparities were already there, but COVID has widened them. So, and, and part of the story, of course, is that, you know, if you're a professional working in an office job, making, uh, you know, $100,000 or something a year, you're probably in a situation where you've been able to stay in that job and work from home and you haven't had serious um, income losses. Not the case for everybody because, you know, it's, it's complicated, but I think just in general, you've seen this um, widening of income disparities. So, you know, unemployment is another one where uh, unemployment has started to come back down, but the numbers are still, you know, for instance, for Black um, Americans, above 10%, really kind of, you know, extraordinarily high. So all those disparities are there. Part of what the important thing to know about um, a COVID package like this is it's really trying to get more money to people who have been most affected uh, by the crisis. It's also trying to sort of, um, you know, help us recover. You know, there's this, this tremendous shock of people, you know, not spending money, not going to restaurants, not going to retail, you know, so it, that means those people who work in those sectors haven't been having take-home pay, et cetera. And this is where it kind of really helps, hopefully, in, um, you know, getting a lot of just giving people money to spend um, that goes back and helps create jobs and kind of, you know, creates a very virtual cycle going forward. When you were talking about those jobs that people, uh, that it struck me that so many of these essential jobs, some of which are quite hazardous, so people have even more vulnerability to illness and health problems, have been the jobs that people of color hold. Our first report we did was back in April on this, where we looked at the demographics of essential workers. Um, and it is, you know, when you think about, you know, the people we're calling essential workers. So uh, you know, it includes people working in grocery stores, um, people working um, in the healthcare system. It includes high-end occupations like doctors, but there's not that many of them, but also, um, you know, less well-compensated positions like um, home health care aides, um, nursing home assistants, and the like. And those are, these are disproportionately, I think of this as really, this is the true working class today. There's not many people working in in coal mines or some of those, you know, you know, visions that people get in their head when we say the working class. These are, you know, people of color, black women working um, in healthcare jobs. You know, sometimes it's even people with college degrees these days working in poorly compensated um, jobs that are just essential. We depend on these um, jobs. And it means you have a lot of contact with people. You're at a higher risk of COVID. Things like the, you know, just the meatpacking industry is a good example of this, where that is both Black and Hispanic, overrepresented, depending on kind of where it is located in the country. Probably some of the most dangerous, you know, dangerous jobs in the United States right now. I mean, they're not paid horribly, but it's just for the work that you're doing, it's kind of extraordinary. Um, and you're close to people, you're, you know, working under kind of a lot of kind of time pressure. Um, and so, uh, you know, we saw very early just mass outbreaks in, in meatpacking um, and, and a lot of deaths associated with that. And hopefully, um, one thing we'll see is with things like this uh, new administration, with the COVID bill, that there'll be a new commitment to just making sure we're doing what we need to for the, to ensure that those workers are safe, have access to, to vaccines, et cetera. So one of the things we found is that, you know, Black men in particular um, have particularly high uninsurance rates. You know, both black men and women in their 20s have very high rates. For black women, it gets a little better 
um, in their 30s and 40s. But for Black men, it doesn't really get better until they start being eligible for a program like Medicare. How can one bill address systemic racism and inequities? You know, let's be serious. It can't. Um, It will take more. It's going to, you know, I think of this as kind of a, this is the start, and we should think about it as the start to address some of the most immediate things. But it can't be the end. It can't be the, the final thing we need. You know, there's already, you know, we're already talking about what the next piece of big legislation like this is. Um, and? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so some of it is, though, I would say it's making things that are temporary in this bill permanent. So, for instance, I mentioned that expanded child tax credit that now, um, you know, increases, you know, in particular, they make sure that the lowest income children get the same um, benefit as middle income ones. And that is um, particularly helpful for black and Latino kids. Um, you know, that's one year. The next step is to make it permanent. Once the Biden administration is committed to this, you know, and once Democrats, I think, um, in particular, and, and I think, hopefully, I think a growing number of Republicans are thinking that it would be good to, for the United States to provide the kind of child benefit you know, a long list of other countries do, Canada, Ireland, you know, Australia, et cetera. Hopefully you've kind of built the momentum so that this can become um, permanent in a way that really mm-hmm. does start undoing these racial inequities. What should be some of the other priorities from the Biden administration that you would like to see to level out these inequities? You know, one thing that I think is hugely important, um, and Biden was very good on this, he had a very good plan, is housing in general. Housing both, you know, uh, particularly you know, affordable rental housing, making sure that people aren't having to pay 40, 50, 60% of their income on rent and often for housing that is substandard. Um, and so, you know, there, are, there have always been um, housing, um, good housing programs in the United States, like um, the housing choice vouchers that HUD runs. Um, but they've been rationed very heavily. So you got to be, you know, you got to be lucky. You got to be on the list. You got to hold in there. You, you know, you may have to live with overcrowded, et cetera. Biden, uh, the Biden plan would be to make sure that everybody who qualifies for those. So if you're, you know, kind of working class, you're making $40,000 a year, you qualify for this housing subsidy, you'll actually get it and don't have to sit on a waiting list for four or five years. Um, so I think that's a really important thing. And it probably hasn't gotten the attention that it should from a, um, you know, just both an economic and racial uh, justice uh, perspective. Yeah, one year in, now I would say that a lot of people already knew as you were studying the inequities, other people noticed some things are being done. Um, has the Have we turned the corner a little bit now that you have more awareness and you have some policies because as you know as we know it's so easy when the spotlight moves more people are getting the vaccine people are going out again for people to kind of lose interest i hear you i think that is a real concern um i think it's going to be very important to um not let these things fade i mean this is i mean i think a little bit about it like other things like Katrina, Hurricane Katrina, remember that. And I don't think we ever really grappled with, you know, there was kind of an immediate disaster response that was a disaster in and of itself. But I don't know that we grappled with kind of the, you know, the real lasting inequities of that. And I think that is something that has to happen here too. There needs to be, you know, some sort of way we're always, we're looking back and trying to continually learn lessons from what were real failures um, um, during this process um, over the last year, you know, 
what didn't get, you know, why wasn't there uh, more done on occupational health and safety? Why didn't the Department of Labor, um, you know, provide guidance to, to meatpacking plants and levy penalties on places where workers were getting sick and dying? So I think, you know, there's all sorts of things like that that um, need to happen. You've talked about lessons learned. What lesson have has the center? What lessons have you learned to inform your work to move your mission going forward from here so that we won't have the next crisis have us circle back and be dealing with some of these same problems? I think keeping our eyes on the racial inequities here continues. And I, I think this was a broader process. You know, it's a combination of COVID with things like George Floyd um, and, and those things that you got to always remember that these things are all connected. You know, you can't, you got to work on them all at once. And, you know, just making progress on one doesn't help if, if one up, you know, if in another area, it goes backwards. So um, that's a little bit of what I, at least personally, take from this. Why did this particular pandemic shine this light on these inequities uh, in so many areas that had existed for so long? Yeah, I think it's a couple things. One is just the scale of it. You know, it's once you start having, you know, the number of deaths, 50,000, 100,000, and in a way that just, you know, changed everybody's life, I feel like there's a lot of crises, you know, horrible things that happen. Katrina is one of them that, you know, you can, you watch it on the news, but it doesn't feel like you're in it maybe, you know, in the same way if you're just watching it on the news where this, the pandemic, to some extent, it changed everybody's life, right? I mean, even if, um, you know, the change was working from home versus going to the office. And so um, maybe there's just something, it feels almost more like, say, you know, I think almost of something like World War II, where, you know, part of that change was, it felt like America was in it together on something and positive. And I think coming out of that had, you know, had changes that were kind of lasting in terms of, um, you know, I think there was something about that that changed civil rights and opened up the way for things like school desegregation and taking on Jim Crow. And one hopes after going through a similar, you know, this was just a horrible thing that killed millions of Americans and or hundreds of thousands of Americans and, and left um, many more um, devastated, that there's something about pulling together and thinking about how we really do better going forward. Yeah, so you're very optimistic and talked about some really good points in this $1.9 trillion bill. Um, but as big as it is, Sean, is that enough or is it just a Band-Aid solution to address all the systemic and structural race, racial divides and uh, disproportionate effects in this uh, society that, that runs so deep? It's not big enough. I think it's more than a Band-Aid, though. Um, I think, you know, it's a start on really addressing some systematic problems. So you need, you know, another package probably at this time. And then you need just fundamental, you know, you need things to pass things like um, democracy reform. You need to pass things on a permanent, longstanding basis. Um, so I don't want to, like, this package is much bigger, say, than the... Um, than the, American, the, the um, Recovery Act during the Great Recession, um, which I think is, you know, it shows that we're in a different place and it's come on top of other packages. So 
I think that's a promising thing. Like, I feel like we have turned something of a corner and, um, um, and I don't want to kind of like, so I don't want to underplay it, but again, yeah, you're right. You can't overplay it. It's not the be all and end all. And it's going to be very important to say why, um, this is a start and we need to do things like continue, you know, things that were done on a temporary uh, basis um, in this bill. We need to pass a minimum wage. We need to, you know, move toward universal health care. We need to pass things like the Biden um, housing plan um, in its entirety and not just the, the pieces of it, you know, the temporary pieces of it here. Yeah, and I did want to ask you a follow-up uh, that's a little bit of a political question because you talked about World War II and having the national will to work together. You talked about school desegregation where it actually, you know, a lot of people did push back. So it was many years till it was really implemented. And today we see pushback. We see people burning masks. We see opening up of states when healthcare officials are saying too fast. Uh, you see uh, uh, some teachers who have to go back and essential workers who are, who are a little bit worried. And even this bill that was popular, according to the polls, got no votes uh, from the Republican Party who say, well, it's too much or it's not directed in the correct way. Uh, so, I mean, will the politics of it in a, a time that's so partisan, how are we going to get that will to do it? Yeah, and that's a that's a great question, and I think it's a fair one. Just because this is a popular bill doesn't mean that it creates you know some new fundamental shift transition. And so, I think that continues to be a concern. Like I mentioned, this expanded child um, tax credit, so that didn't really get a lot of opposition from Republican senators in the process. But you already have um, a lot of conservatives, you know, powerful conservative institutions, kind of talking. Um, speaking out against that, using kind of a lot of, frankly, old kind of racist uh, tropes and stereotypes around welfare to kind of push back and say, you know, this is just creating the quote unquote old welfare system. And, you know, so I think you're going to see that kind of thing. And I hope some of this, I think, depends. It's, it, it does come down to have Democrats really changed? You know, are they in a different place than they were 25, 30 years ago? Are there individual Republicans that are? Um, and I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And, I, you know, it makes things like the election in two years are going to be really um, fundamental. I mean, when, when FDR, you know, did the New Deal, he had a huge majority, right? I mean, this was something that was much, much larger than Biden has now. So he didn't have to worry so much about, say, you know, like in today's terms, Joe Manchin or uh, Christian Cinema. So, you know, people like that are going to be playing a bigger role and hopefully they'll be responsible about it. Thank you, Sean Fremstead, for coming on Equal Time and talking to our listeners just about what this uh, last year has illuminated and how it may lead us to some solutions that'll help everyone. Thank you very much. So what's keeping me up at night? In Women's History Month, this week, we had International Women's Day, celebrating the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women. And while I'm celebrating, I'm also thinking of the role of Black women in that history. At turns, ignored and praised, vilified and valorized, and sometimes called on to save the world. All in all, exhausting. I write about it in this week's Roll Call column while name-checking Sojourner Truths Stacey Abrams, 
Meghan Markle, and a few others. Check it out. And let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. Thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.